and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is half an hour where we get to talk all about science. My name is Stu and on the show this week I'm going in for a little bit of neuropsychology, um, a recently published study uh, looking at whether there's a connection between people's psychological traits and their uh, ideological beliefs. So there's a big study out of Stanford University, Um, but I'll get into the details of that later. There is obviously, you know, all of our thoughts come together to make who we are. So it's interesting that they're they're kind of getting some some data and actually working out what this means um, Mm. for people. And especially, you know, it is kind of important. We see people's attitudes getting increasingly polarised, especially with online discussions and stuff. It's interesting to be able to maybe figure out how how do we get to those polarised points as well. So there's a little bit of that in there too. And... Claire, what do you have for us this week? Well, Stu, I have a story about um, one of my favourite things to talk about, which has sort of dropped off the radar recently, is um, all about cloning of um, highly endangered and extinct species. There has been a new species cloned. Really? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell you what species it is, but it is the first wild species um, to be cloned in the United States. Um, and it was, has been a joint effort, obviously, but, um, it's just been, um, some, some new research about it has just been published and new reports and obviously very cute photos, um, of the new cloned species with the name Elizabeth Ann. That's the clone's name. So stay tuned for what new clone species is now in the world and what that means for the future um for the future of that that particular species as well and the future of potentially extinct species sounds really super interesting i hope we can find out more details on why (laughs) she's ended up with that name but we'll have to wait for that later on in the show please stay tuned The big defining features of the early 21st century so far has been the widespread adoption of social media platforms by quite a large cross-section of the population. And apparently, as a consequence, we've also seen dramatic polarisation of political viewpoints, though, you know, it seems to be dramatic polarisation of all kinds of viewpoints. People seem to be able to 
get in an argument over just about anything uh, on the internet, even clearly demonstrated facts. Now, it's been a long established idea in psychology that people who have particular psychological characteristics may be more likely to exhibit certain behaviors and subscribe to certain ideologies as well. Um, mm. But obviously, due, due to limitations of cross-discipline research, a lot of these ideas are only tested on a very small scale or often tested to kind of demonstrate an existing idea that someone's got. So they're trying to sort of prove their theory or their pet hypothesis. In very basic terms, um, you know, there are politically conservative people, there are socially conservative people, there are religious people, mm. there are uh, people people who are dogmatic, there are people who are less dogmatic. So they're all sort of quite generalised mm. um, concepts of what these ideologies are. Individual researchers will define pretty clearly what they're looking at, but as a broad sort of spectrum of of behaviors and ideologies and psychological predispositions so researchers at stanford university were interested to find out if they could link people's ideological position with their psychological predispositions and their cognitive abilities so their ability of processing information and you know the, the kind of mental activities that they can actually uh, achieve and in some very interesting ways, they found that they could actually link these sort of different parts of people's uh, mental makeup. So in a paper published in February in the journal Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society B, which is actually a biology journal, they outlined their findings from extensive data collected over multiple years. So they set up this long-term experiment. They collected a whole lot of data from a number of participants. They recruited participants from an earlier study, which they were kind of building on the findings of that study. Um, and they gave these uh, subjects a series of cognitive tests and a series of sort of self-reporting surveys to, found right. out, to find out what they, what they thought about certain things, how they would approach political, uh, you know, ideas and policy ideas and all these other sorts of things. Um, and that was to establish both both their abilities, their cognitive abilities, and a bit of a psychological profile of all of these test subjects. So then they used this to see if they could predict the ideological predisposition of the participants and found high correlations in a number of areas which were not easily explained by other demographic indicators. So they looked at you know, age, socioeconomic background, gender, ethnicity, all of those things where you might go, well, that mm. might be a group of people who have similar ideas. But what they found was it was the ideologies that seemed to come forward to match up with these cognitive abilities that the people had in their testing. I mean, so, as we know, as we know, correlation doesn't equal causation, though. No, absolutely not. Um it just, you know, they, they found that, you know, uh, other factors, they were getting sort of an 8% correlation. And then with these ideological factors, they were getting 30 or 40% correlation. So it was a big jump in how well correlated they are. Mm. Which direction it works, though, that's the big question is, is one, you know, is the psychology influencing the ideology mm. or is the ideology influencing the psychology? Mm. Are both of them in influencing their cognitive abilities 
this is you know somewhere where the research has to go into to figure out yeah. if you know what why there is this um, correlation here. Um, so one of the groups I mentioned before was uh, people who were identified as being dogmatic in their ideological mm. approach. So this is people who stick closely to an idea. They're unwilling to hear alternative views. Um, what they found was that those people, when they were when they were tested on their cognitive abilities, um, they accumulated new information more slowly when faced with rapid decision making tasks. So they they didn't take on board new information when they were having to make decisions based on that information, which was a big uh, you know a big sort of question mm. mark. Of why do they, why are these people having this um, lack of this cognitive ability to, obs- to, to accumulate this new information. Um, they were also, strangely, more impulsive. And uh, according to the paper, they were willing to take more ethical risks than other people. So the dogmatic people didn't take on new information. They would make uh, impulsive decisions and they would take ethical risks with their impulsive decisions, which is an interesting group Mm. of characteristics that they found with these people. Um, They also found in participants who were more religious and in people who were politically conservative, they found a high level of caution, which is defined as the unwillingness to act in decision-based tasks. So across the religious, more religious people and the politically conservative people, they were sort of more uh, willing to wait to make a decision than to just jump in and do something, Um, which I guess is kind of the opposite of that risk-taking of the dogmatic people Mm. um, in a way. They're just sort of holding back. They're just, well, we won't change anything because something might go wrong, I guess. Um, This group was also less likely to take social risks, so they didn't want to be seen as being on the outer of any social group that they were put in. Um, the authors suggested that in these groups who are less able to accumulate new information quickly, especially where it's related to strategic thinking, it tends to make them more sure of the ideology they already have. Mm. So they don't take on new information and they they buckle down with the the position, the ideological position they've already taken, which kind of makes a lot of sense. If you're not, if you're not good at getting new information, well, you want to be even more sure that the way you think is is the right way to think. So this kind of, you know, I don't think there's anything um, surprising in that sort of correlation there. Um, on the flip side, is the idea that people who can take up new information and process it quickly are more inclined to see their understanding of any given situation as incomplete. So they're more willing to change their position based on this new information which they're accumulating, especially, as I mentioned before, when it comes to decision-based tasks that they've been asked to do. Um, So responses that indicated... um, Support so responses from the test subjects that indicated support for what the authors called toxic ideologies, such as violence or suppression of other groups of people. There were many more dogmatic and politically conservative people represented mm-hmm. in those responses, 
which again, probably no big surprise there. Um, But the authors really were focused on whether we can use that interpretation, whether we can use that understanding to develop some sort of socially cohesive education programs to try and get these people to be more accepting of other groups of people. So, you know, less radicalised, less toxic ideologies um, by understanding what is driving them into those ideologies, which is kind of why they set up this uh, experiment in the first place. Now, obviously, this is only one study, but the general idea that people's ideological comfort zone may be a product of more basic psychological and possibly even neurological traits is an interesting idea. And this is really just the beginning of research into this area. And if you want to read more about it, see if you can track down the, uh, the, the, the journal article. There's been other news items about it as well, some of which misinterpret, I think, what, what the journal article was actually saying. But it's an interesting area of research. And I think it's very important in an era where we need better social cohesion and cooperation, it's really important that we understand these kind of differences and find ways to work with them rather than ignore them or, you know, create further division uh, between these um, these sort of opposing ideologies. <laughs> I'm Maggie Adaren Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR.
Stu, remember when Dolly the sheep was first cloned? Oh yeah, don't don't ask me to uh, to to call recall the date off the top of my head. No, but yeah, I do remember. I, mean, I remember I Dolly. I won't I won't ask you to remember what you were doing when Dolly the sheep was first cloned. <laughs> but just that you know, it was a big deal, right? And it got yeah. everyone you know wildly speculating about how cloning was going to go mainstream. Um, you know, soon we were going to be able to clone our pets, and animals were going to be able to come back from extinction um anyway Stu, it's sort of happened it's sort of happened (laughs) yeah all our wild speculation has sort of happened okay okay let me okay let me clarify so so where where do i get my tickets to jurassic park (laughs) i knew you were gonna say that i knew it you knew yeah you knew it i did i did um okay let's go back for a second so you can get your pet cloned uh, for the right price. I feel like we, we might have done a story on this in Lost in Science in the past. We we did we did cover that. It was it's quite expensive. It's quite expensive. And it's pretty risky. Yes. You don't necessarily get the same pet yes. that you had. There's but all you, sorts of issues with it. But if you Barbara Streisand, you get two of the same pet. Um, she cloned her dog Samantha into two clones. She named them Violet and Scarlet. Oof, um, just for the record, they came from Samantha's, one came from Samantha's stomach cells and one came from Samantha's mouth cells. So it's a lovely origin story, isn't it? Um, <laughs> anyway. One's, one's always one's always hungry and one's always barking. Is that? <laughs> yeah, well, so, so today on the show, I'm going to tell you all about how we are one step closer to cloning and recreating an extinct animal. And I know you're thinking about Jurassic Park. I was too. No, it's not a velociraptor. It is a black-footed ferret. <laughs> that That is, in, in a weird way, that is almost as cool. <laughs> I'm glad you think so because they are sort of cool. I mean, they look like regular ferrets, but they've got a bit of black on them. <laughs> But they've got black feet, obviously. But they have black feet, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, um, so, so hang on. So, this is this is not a domestic animal. Dolly the sheep was a sheep. Yeah. Um, I think they've done. You know, they've done domestic pets, like you said. Yeah. This is not a domestic animal. This, this is, is not a, a domestic this is a wild animal. animal. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, scientists have successfully cloned a wild and highly endangered species for the first time. Um, this has happened in the United States. And um, the name of the clone is Elizabeth Ann, which is lovely, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's, it's a very regal name, it's I very think. very regal yeah. name for a black-footed ferret. Yeah. For, for a ferret. I know, right? Oh, dear. Anyway, so <laughs> technically, technically the black-footed ferret is not extinct. However, the cells who... Um, the cells, you know, that were cloned to create Elizabeth Ann uh, came from an animal that died more than 30 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So this isn't, you know, the cloning of an animal that is a contemporary. This is this is somewhat, um, uh, you know, there's 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 been quite a there's been quite a time lag. Between. Quite, quite a gap. So was yeah. this 30 years ago, was this a preserved specimen or? Yeah, it was exactly. So, um, yeah, as you're starting to pick up, there's 
there's a bit of a story here with the black-footed ferrets. So uh, let me go back because originally black-footed ferrets were thought to be extinct globally for many years um, and had been brought to, ex- you know, the brink of extinction after uh, the main their main uh, prey, which is the prairie dog, which I guess a lot of people would know, um, the prairie dog, those sort of like ratish sort of guinea pig looking animals in the States that run around on the prairies. Um, widespread poisoning of prairie dogs and trapping of prairie dogs left the black footed ferret without a food source, causing a huge population crash. Uh, so in the 1970s, black-footed ferrets were so scarce they were ex- assumed to be extinct until 1981 when um, in Wyoming, of all places, a dog came back from, you know, prowling around all night and dropped what turned out to be a freshly killed black-footed ferret um, at its owner's porch door. So this then wow. led to the discovery of or the rediscovery of a very small pocket population of individuals of this um, black-footed ferret, all from the same family. Um, so fast forward 30 years into the future and um, a painstaking captive breeding program and reintroduction program has been underway and scientists have managed to get the population of black-footed ferrets from this you know very very small population found in Wyoming to around 400 to 500 individuals Um, but the issue as you can probably imagine is genetic diversity and this population remains really under threat from disease Uh, and not just any disease (laughs) but the plague so, so the, these black-footed ferrets are under attack from the plague. As in the Black Death? Yeah. <laughs> the Black Death wow. is rampant okay. in ferret populations in the US. Um, not just black-footed ferrets, but also your regular ferrets as well, which, is, which are a little bit more common, which transfer them, transfer the, the, right. that particular so the, disease. So, so the, whole, the whole family's kind of... Or the whole the whole sort of class of animals is is yeah your whole by the ferret family can get black death but but there's only but there's only a few of the black footed ferrets so they're much more in danger right yeah yeah that's right uh, so the black footed ferrets are very susceptible to this disease and one of the reasons is like I said before they lack a lot of diversity in their genes and over generations they have lost a lot of this genetic diversity, which means that um, they don't have the same, you know, diverse uh, immune systems that a lot of other populations do. So if there's a threat of disease, you've got diversity within those genes to be able to, you know, so some ferrets will be able to fight it and then have, you know, and those particular genes will be selected into the next population. So... All black-footed ferrets alive today are genetic descendants of about seven animals out of that group. So we're going from seven to 500 um, without any introduction of outside gene material. So you can imagine there's a fair bit of inbreeding that's happening. And what's called in the business is um, it's a genetic bottleneck. So you go from, 
you know, very small number of genes in the in the population, and then you go back out again, but you don't get any extra good genetic diversity coming in. Now, um, like I said, there's only one way to get around the genetic bottleneck, and that's to introduce new genes and new individuals into the population, which is, of course, where Elizabeth Ann comes in, our clone friend, our black footed ferret clone friend. So she has a unique DNA and it's from a completely different and unrelated family to the Wyoming ferrets. And um, so Elizabeth Ann is, you know, as a clone is also a source of much needed genetic diversity to introduce into the inbred population. Um, So you were asking about the you know, where that tissue came from, if it was the 1980s, where that black-footed, black-footed ferret tissue came from. Well, interestingly, so Elizabeth Ann's donor cells came from a black-footed ferret named Willa, um, and that was from the San Diego Zoo, who embarked on a project in the 1980s called the Frozen Zoo. <laughs> which Wow. Yeah, which contains frozen tissue samples from over a thousand different species which is incredible which is incredible foresight considering you know cloning wasn't really a thing back then and then yeah it's like um you know even even walt disney couldn't couldn't freeze himself quick enough that's right yeah (laughs) and then seven years later so oh sorry so so then in 2013 Um, The United States Fisheries and Wildlife Services partnered with a conservation biotech not-for-profit called Revive and Restore and um, and another organisation, which you guessed it, is a pet cloning company named Viagen. They all um, collaborated together to clone the black-footed ferret. So that was in 2013 and then seven years later, in late 2020, Elizabeth Ann was born and she was born to a domestic ferret um, there were two unrelated uh, domestic little ferrets that were born. They're, they're called kits, if you didn't know, fun fact, um, and a second clone that did not survive. So Elizabeth Ann now lives in Colorado. <laughs> She's been tested. She's a 100% black-footed ferret. So far her behaviour is normal, which is great, but she will be closely monitored for her whole life. Now there are plans for her and the continuation of the species, of course. So researchers um, are saying that they're going to first start looking at um, cryobanks of frozen black-footed ferret semen to see if they can, you know, in- introduce some more genetic diversity uh, and then also look at the living male ferrets to get best genetic matches for Elizabeth Ann. So it's going to be it's going to be a long process, but an incredible achievement to date um, and... Yeah, incredible. I, I was just struck by the incredible foresight of the frozen zoo to collect all those samples of tissues back in the 1980s before, you know, before it really was a thing. Uh, but I guess what's important now for the survival of the species past Elizabeth Ann is, you know, a huge unwavering commitment to protect and maintain habitat and the populations of wild black-footed ferrets because it's always going to be a lot easier to protect a species than it is to clone one back into existence.
that's all we've got time for for this week and we are rapidly running out of time. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We are broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And if you would like to tune in next week, Chris, Stu and Claire will get locked in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.